We invite you to Jeremiah, the 21st chapter, and there we will read the first 10 verses for our subject text this morning. Jeremiah chapter 21, verses 1 through 10. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent unto him Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, saying, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, maketh war against us. If so be that the Lord will deal with us according to all his wondrous works, that he may go up from us. Then said Jeremiah unto them, Thus shall ye say to Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, wherewith ye fight against the king of Babylon, and against the Chaldeans which besiege you without the walls, and I will assemble them into the midst of this city. And I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will smite the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, they shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards saith the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people and such as are left in this city from the pestilence, from the sword, and from the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those that seek their life. And he shall smite them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them, neither have pity, nor have mercy. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. But he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans that besiege you he shall live, and his life shall be unto him for a prey. For I have set my face against this city for evil, and not for good, saith the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. The verses that are our main focus for our title and for our message today are verses 8 and 9, particularly verse 8 the latter part, which says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And in verse 9, we're told what both of those are. The way of death is to abide in the city. The way of life is to go out of the city. And what we would say in one word, the title of our message is, Surrender. And we would say that in an exclamatory fashion that from verse 9 so the title of the message is and the prophet's message is to those who came inquired surrender surrender that is viewed as a shameful thing in human eyes because of human pride but before God it is the only way to live and have eternal life now the verses we read begin in the first three verses with a very common repetitive truth 
that we see over and over. Zedekiah is the last king of Judah, the last king of Jerusalem. The Babylonian army is besieging the city of Jerusalem. And now that they are in dire straits and destruction and war and all is looming over them just outside the walls, he sends unto the prophet Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord, literally for help is what it amounts to. And the common repetitive thing we see in these first three verses is the procrastination of human nature. That is not to heed or make preparation ahead of time, but literally in most cases to wait until it's too late to seek God and to seek God's help. God's word by the prophet Jeremiah, as well as Isaiah and others, has been not heeded, and those to whom it has been preached previous to this chapter have procrastinated up until this time, believing that it wouldn't happen, and they've literally told Jeremiah and other of the prophets, Isaiah, we don't believe it, We don't believe it's going to happen. We don't believe it's going to come to pass. Why don't you just shut up or tell us something that's more soothing to our ears. But now guess what? The army is outside the walls of Jerusalem. Just as the prophets said they would be. And the prophecy has been and is that they will destroy and overcome Jerusalem and the people therein. So this is like the last ditch effort where the king sends these two individuals and in verse 2 says, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord. And this inquiring is not asking to look into a crystal ball and tell us what's going to happen. That's already been told. But the desire is that the prophet Jeremiah would literally, the word inquire is seek the Lord for help. Because they say at the last part, perhaps it will be that the Lord will deal with us according to all of His wondrous works. That He, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, may go up or go away from us. And that it's not going to happen as it is. And literally what they've done here is what's so common with human beings due to sin and due to depravity is to put off till it's too late doing anything you should have done earlier. The king and his predecessors and the people have enjoyed prosperity and therefore they have tended to ignore the message of the prophets. It's kind of like going outside today and looking about and it's a beautiful sunshiny day for the winter. Maybe cool, but it's beautiful and sunshiny. And it's hard to stand out there in that bright, warm sunshine when there's no clouds in the sky and perceive that a storm could be looming in just a few hours or in a day. But we know that's exactly what happens, don't we? And others know that too. You can live in places where, and many times it even happens here, where we have nice warm weather right before a big blast of a cold storm with a lot of snow or other inclement weather, don't we? 
But when you're standing in the sun, it's hard to believe a storm's really coming, even though it's forecasted, right? Well, that's exactly what the people have done here, the king and Israel. They've enjoyed prosperity, and they have neglected the warning of God that a storm, the judgment of God, is coming in the form of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Chaldean army. And this is what human nature always does. Human nature tends to wait until it's too late before crying out to God. And we let me give you a few examples of this. Think about the children of Israel when they were in Egypt. And remember Moses and Aaron was commanded to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go, and etc., etc. And Pharaoh's reply was, being proud and hard-hearted as he was, who is God that I should listen to you and listen to what you're saying? You know, why should I obey him? Well, the plague started, and he began to find out, didn't he? And you can go through this. I'm only going to read one scripture, but it's repeated uh, several times in the book of Exodus. And I'm going to read the first one, chapter 8, when the frogs came. And about verse 28, I believe it is, uh, Pharaoh said, I will, this is after the, you know, the frogs and the lice and various plagues have already started now. We're already into the plagues. And Pharaoh calls Moses and says, I will let you go that you may sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far. And notice the words, entreat for me. So he's petitioning Moses when the calamity, when the disaster, when the plague is upon them and they're in misery and dire straits. He's saying, entreat the Lord. Intercede for me to God now. You know, help me now. Well, Pharaoh had a habit of repeating this process and so do human beings. He did the same thing in chapter 9 and verse 28. He did the same thing again, chapter 10 and verse 17. And this is the common human nature at work. We hear stories of infidels, atheists who have defied, blasphemed God and on their deathbed, guess what some of their last words are? They're crying out to the very God that they denied. That's human nature at work. The Israelites tended to do the same thing and manifest the same thing. Those who were unbelievers in that when they were delivered from Egypt and entered into the wilderness... You know, when, uh, when everything was fine, they were fine. But as soon as something went wrong, they accused Moses of bringing him out there to die, didn't they? And then they would complain. And then they would murmur. And then they would be in distress. And only in a bad situation did they think it was time to acknowledge and turn to God. The psalmist describes this in Psalms chapter 78. It is a, a familiar psalm where he uh, in that Psalm 78, he goes through the things that rehearsing the Exodus journey and the things that they did wrong and how rebellious they were. In Psalms chapter 78 and verse 34, we read these words. When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and inquired early after God. And there's our word again, inquired, meaning to seek after God and acknowledge Him. But what did it take? It took their carcasses falling in the wilderness through various events and various circumstances before they would seek God. I mean, it had to get the worst of the worst 
the worst types of situations and circumstances. In fact, we might say the last thing or the last straw in their tragedy or circumstances before they turn to God. So everything else first and God last. And this was repetitive with Israel, you might remember. Not only in the Exodus journey was it manifest, but even after that in their history. Remember when they were settled in the land under Joshua. What's the next book in your Bible after Joshua? Judges. And in Judges, what do we see? We see them departing from God and disobeying. God doing what? Delivering them in the hand of their enemies. And when it got so bad, then they would what? Cry out to God. God would deliver them, raise up a judge. They'd repeat the process. It goes over and over and over and over again. I often refer to it just like the cycles on a washing machine. It's just, it's just laid out time and time again. It does the same thing through the book of Judges. But they had to be put into a bad situation at the hands of their enemies before they would ever acknowledge God again. That's human nature at work. That's exactly human nature at work. In fact, in the book of Hosea, the little book of Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15, there's a statement there that really sums up what I am saying. It refers to Israel, but it's true of humanity and sinners. Hosea 5.15, I will go and return to my place, that's God, till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. Well, when's that going to be? Well, in their affliction. In their affliction, they will seek me early, meaning promptly and on Johnny on the spot, so to speak. But that's what it takes. That's, that's what we see here in our text. Zedekiah and the people in their prosperity have neglected God and now it's got down to where the army is right outside the wall there. The threat is real. The danger is impending. The judgment is there. And now they cry out to God. And so it goes. The same thing happens when you go through the book of Kings. You know, only when they were, again, I'm using the word dire straits or in great danger... Did kings turn to the Lord or seek to a prophet to inquire of the Lord and so forth and so on as a last resort? And that's the typical behavior of sinners. That's why this building's not full. That's why when the gospel is preached most of the time, sinners do not bow down before it, obey it, repent, and be saved. They manifest the same attitude as those I've described to you. In fact, so desperate, there's another example in the Bible that one commentator mentioned on this that I believe is worth sharing, and that's the case of Joab, who was a, a general back under King David, you might remember. And it was Joab that actually slew Absalom. And he slew Abner and some other good men too. And when uh, under Solomon, Solomon was going to punish Joab and literally got after him to go get him, you know what he did in desperation, Joab? You might remember it when I mention it. In 1 Kings, he ran into the tabernacle or temple and ran in and grabbed hold of the horns on the altar. The most sacred place of all. In final desperation, thinking that, you know, this will save me or this is my last desperate act to run at the very last moment to the sacred place and to God. Well, if you know the story, it didn't say he died there in that regard. 
But that's typical of human nature, and that is exactly what Zedekiah and the people are hoping for here in our text. When it mentions here in our text about God's uh, maybe doing his uh, deal with us according to all his wondrous works, they're giving lip service here to God and what he has done, particularly in the past. Before this, let me be brief, but let me remind you, when Hezekiah was king, several generations before Zedekiah here, the Assyrian army came and besieged Jerusalem likewise, and they were going to take it. Remember that? You might remember that story. And Sennacherib was the leader of that army, and he threatened and blasphemed and told the people, you better not listen to Hezekiah. If you stand and fight with him, you'll die. You need to surrender to us and so forth and so on. And Hezekiah inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, they're not coming in my city. He said, I'm going to take care of them out there, and they'll go back home with their tail tucked between their legs. And he did. An angel of the Lord came and slew 185,000 of them out there overnight. And Sennacherib tucked tail went back home and ended up being assassinated. So this was in their history and this is what I think Zedekiah and the people are hoping for here is that the city didn't fall before when the army was outside besieging it. So maybe God will spare us again. But the prophecy is... God says through Jeremiah, I will not spare. Three points we want to make here. The first one being the warning of the coming judgment and destruction. Now, how can bad news be good news? Well, if it comes in the form of a warning, bad news is good news. It is a gracious act. It is a kind act. It is a benevolent act for someone to warn somebody when they're in grave danger or approaching grave danger. When they know something that you don't know and can warn you about it before it happens to your harm or to your destruction or whatever it may be, that's a blessing. I mean, we like for people to tell us and warn us about things that we may not see and know of, right? So my point is, it has always been and always will be a gracious, benevolent act of God when He sends His messengers with the message of warning of a coming judgment, a coming pestilence, a coming famine, or in this case, the destruction of the city. That's a blessing. And you think about how often God has done that as it's recorded in His Word. We recently preached to you a couple of messages about the flood. Did God warn people about the flood? Yes, He did, didn't He? How did He do that? Through a man named Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Well, did Noah just send out one message one time to all the world that there was a flood coming and that God was going to destroy it and you better get right with God lest you perish? No. He did it more than once, didn't He? It went on for a period of over a hundred years. The Bible says in Peter, while once the long-suffering of God waited while Noah was building the ark, every day Noah was out there hammering away or sawing away on that ark, it was a testimony of the warning that God had made. 
we need an ark to survive. God has warned that if you're not on the ark, you're going to die. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, so that warning was there for over a hundred years. How many people heeded the warning? You know, only eight souls went on the ark, didn't they? Did people procrastinate then? I mean, I don't know, and I don't want to create a scene that uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about, but we can we know human nature, and we can easily envision the scene that, uh, you know, it started to rain. Say, say, okay, it's starting to rain. We never saw rain before, but we don't know what a flood is. And then as the water rose and they began to see the reality of a flood, they thought, well, Noah may have been right. But don't you know they waited till the very last, till there was no more ground to stand on or no more trees to climb? And then they probably wanted on the boat or wanted on the ark. That's human nature. Wait until it's too late. But God gave sufficient warning repeatedly for a long period of time. He didn't hide the fact that it was coming, did He? Likewise, that was God's pattern, and I'll try to be brief and press on here, when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Why did God destroy people in the flood? Because the evil of man had come up to a degree that God would no longer tolerate. Why did he destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain? The evil and wickedness there, again, reached a point that God said, this is intolerable, I'm going to destroy it. Did he hide that? No. He didn't even hide it from his friend Abraham. Remember that? And remember the discussion there about, well, will you spare the city if there be this many righteous and so forth and so on? And he warned Lot and the angels went down there and Lot tried to warn some of his uh, family. And remember, they just thought, well, you're a nut. You know, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. Too little, too late, right? Lot was taken by the hand with his daughters and out they went. His wife turned around, you know the story. And what happened? Everybody perished, but they did not perish without warning, did they? They did not perish without warning. And in our text, up until this time, before the army come, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others have been forewarning that there will come an army out of the north. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans, an army like you've never seen before. And it will destroy this place if you continue in your sin and your idolatry and your disobedience. And now guess what? Again, I say the army is outside the wall. And you know what? God also warns us of a judgment to come upon this world and upon all humanity that will be universal like the flood. Will it not? Except it will be more detailed in that every human being who has ever lived will give an account of themselves unto God. So if these others have come to pass, and those who didn't heed the warning have perished. What's going to happen in that day at the great white throne judgment when Christ comes to judge everything and all persons? There's going to be a judgment like has never been seen before. And if you do not heed the warning, if you do not surrender, if you do not obey to the message of the gospel, then you will be cast into outer darkness and find hell to be your home for eternity. It is said here that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. We look in our text at verse 4, and it says there in the latter part of that verse, I will assemble them into the midst of this city, meaning that they will defeat 
Zedekiah and what army and resistance he have and and Nebuchadnezzar's army will march into the midst of the city meaning it'll be overcome overrun overtaken and then destroyed literally burnt with fire verse 6 and notice I want you to notice something very carefully here this is very important and from last week's message Uh, particularly on providence. I want you to notice how God does this. We mentioned about God using and being able to use any and any type of means He wants. And here it is the Babylonian army that's going to destroy Jerusalem, right? Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are literally, physically going to do it. They're going to tear down the walls. They're going to kill people with a sword. I mean, they're going to they're going to cause the blood to flow, and then they're going to burn the city with fire. Yet throughout our text, the Lord is saying, "I will do this. I will do that. They will do it, but I will do it. I will assemble them in the midst of the city." He's going to use the Babylonians to accomplish His will and His purpose. Okay, verse five. I myself will fight against. Down to verse 7, he says, uh, the people that are left in this city are going to die from a pestilence, from a famine, from a sword at the hands of the king of Babylon. He will not spare them. He will not pity them. He will not have mercy upon them. And God is saying synonymous with that, I'm not going to pity any of you. So again, God is executing his purpose providentially with the Babylonian or Chaldean army. Verse 10, he literally says, It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he's going to burn it with fire. So it is a done deal that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And it was. Just exactly as Isaiah and Jeremiah, the two major prophets, prophesied that it would be. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. What did Christ say immediately before he was betrayed and crucified at the hands of his own brethren about Jerusalem? I'm going to reference that very quickly. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, when he come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou in in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hidden from thy eyes, for the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed when he ministered here upon the earth and shortly thereafter within a few decades Titus the Roman emperor came in and did exactly that thing. The first time is here in Jeremiah. That's the second time over there. So what about the things that are prophesied in the end time? About a judgment again. They will come to pass. That's why I referenced that. So the solemn warning to every one of us, to all of us as sinners, is that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. How does Hebrews set that forth so clearly to us in the ninth chapter in verse 27 when it says unto each of us there is an appointment with death, right? And what after that? After that, the judgment. Now the only time to do anything about the judgment is before you die. 
Because there is no preparation from judgment after one dies. We have appointment with death. We don't know when it is. We don't know how many time, how much time any of us have to prepare for death or judgment. But the bottom line, it's coming. And yet people live like they're never going to die. The Bible says prepare for the life hereafter. And all people do is consume their time with the life that is now. This is so short, it's even a vapor. And yet eternity is forever. But sinners, apart from the grace of God, will procrastinate till the very end. But that is the warning. Death could surprise anybody at any time. And then there is no time for preparation. All that is left then is an impending judgment. And the Bible speaks to us of that judgment just like it speaks to us here. God speaking to us here in the text or to uh, those that came to Him in verse 5. He says that this judgment is going to be a fight against them with a strong arm in anger and fury and great wrath. In anger, fury, and great wrath. It is going to be a judgment again, verse 7, when it speaks of the Babylonians, synonymous with God, of not sparing, nor having any pity, nor having any mercy whatsoever. Verse 10, God says, I have set my face against this city for evil. Because of evil, it's going to be judged. In the New Testament, we constantly read or read references to the wrath to come. A day of judgment. Old Testament and new. The day of the Lord. A day of great wrath and judgment. Remember John the Baptist preaching? Looked out at the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders and said, You generation of viper, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John preached about a wrath to come. Paul preached to the Thessalonians. They believed the gospel and his preaching of the gospel was by believing in Christ, repenting of their sins and turning from idols, they had been delivered from the wrath to come. The judgment to come in its finality in the end of all persons at the great white throne will be a judgment that will exhibit the wrath and fury of Almighty God. In fact, Revelation 6 and 17 says to us that people will say, the great day of His wrath has come. That's what there is coming. I won't take the time to read it, but this is described in the book of Revelation chapter 19 beginning at verse 11 where John sees heaven open and Christ coming on a white horse, the armies of heaven following behind Him, the things that are written upon him, his name, what comes out of his mouth. He destroys the Antichrist, the false prophet, casts him into the lake of fire, subdues his enemy. It is a day of the wrath of God upon evil. We are warned about. It is yet to come, but it will come, and it will come then for the same reason it come here, the same reason it came in the flood, because of the sins, neglect, idolatry, and disobedience of sinners. They will be judged. 
In fact, if you are still there in Jeremiah, look at the 22nd chapter, verse 8 and 9. Many nations shall pass by this city. They shall say every man and his neighbor, Wherefore hath the Lord done this to this great city? And notice this again. Who did it? The Chaldeans. Who really did it behind the scenes? God did using the Chaldeans. And here's the answer. Verse 9. Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. And everyone that's not obeyed the gospel has guilty of that very same thing. The next point is this. The deception of sin that Zedekiah and the people were guilty of. The message was given to them about how to live, how to be saved, how to be delivered, how not to perish. And that message was, again, verse 8, surrender. Surrender to the power that is outside that wall. That's the only way you can live. But they are nicely tucked away inside the walls of the city. And those walls, imagine it, that's the difference between, you know, being in the hands of the enemy or being safe within. They took security, a false sense of security, in the walls of Jerusalem. Think about it. This is what they did. We're inside here. We're in a safe, secure place. The walls are protecting us from the things that are out there in the enemy. And then they had this also to deceive themselves about in thinking, well, the city's never been taken before. It is God's city. It's never been overthrown or taken before. Again, Hezekiah was delivered. The Assyrian army was turned back. Why should we think that somehow, some way, it's going to fall this time just because old Jeremiah says that's what's going to happen? It's easy to think. Sinners think this. We were all sinners before God saved us that are saved today. And we all thought some way, somehow, there'd be a way out. A way of escape. Either that it really won't happen. If it does happen, it won't be as bad as they say. And very possibly we may some way, somehow, get out of it. That's sin and that's the deception of sin. That's sitting snug in your own little bubble behind your own little wall, whatever it may be, thinking that you're protected. That's almost like as foolish as the ostrich sticking its head in the sand and we make fun of him, don't we? Because, because he can't see the danger, the danger is not real. Well, if God has said it's real, let me tell you it was real. If we had those to line up here today and testify to us that perished in the flood, they'd tell us it was real. It did come to pass. If we had those that perished in Sodom and Gomorrah to stand here today, they would tell us it was real. God forewarned it and it happened. And we could go on and on. We could call Pharaoh here. And we could call many others who have rebelled. And we actually have the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar and his rebellion in Daniel chapter 4. Wonderful testimony there. Of the proud man, the stubborn man like Pharaoh whom God humbled and survive. But the pride of the sinner, like the pride of Zedekiah and the people there, causes them to be stubborn and to say, we're safe in here. Let's just fight against them. 
We can resist them. We can do this. We can do that by our own hands. And we can deliver ourselves. And we'll make it. Not so. Because they're not fighting just against a Chaldean or Babylonian army or a Babylonian king. You know who they're fighting against? They're fighting against God. God said that. I mean, He said that in verse 21, verse 5, chapter 21, verse 5. I myself will fight against you. It's foolish to resist and fight against God. How successful was Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea in that? They perished. How successful were the Assyrians? They perished. But the bottom line is, this is sin's deception, and we see it manifest with the people in Zedekiah here. You know about it if you're saved by the grace of God today, because you had some wall of some kind that you were hiding behind and trusting in rather than obey what God said. Surrender. And those who reject the gospel today are hiding behind something. Some wall that is nothing but a lie. And when the judgment of God comes, guess what? That wall will come down for every sinner just like the walls of Jericho came down. And let me say to you, have you ever thought about how shocked the people of Jericho were when the wall come down. Just think about that for a moment. Where was their security? Where was their refuge? Where was their hope of deliverance, of living, of surviving? It was in the walls of Jericho. Likewise, Zedekiah and the people here are trusting the walls of Jerusalem and their own army and their own weaponry, and it will not cause them to be delivered. It will not protect them. I mean, can you... I, I don't think we can begin to imagine. But do think about it. Because the shock is the same. What would a soldier or an inhabitant of Jericho feel like one moment when they're behind that wall and have their weapons of war in their hands? And these people are out here just marching around without weapons and armor. And all of a sudden the wall comes down and you're looking at them face to face. Well, you think about that. Sinners need to think about that because right now they may defy and neglect the God of this Bible. But in the next moment they could be in hell. That quick. That quick. And one day, of course, they'll face God. Let's look at our text again. Surrender. We said it was a blessing that God gives warning. It's even a greater blessing that God provides deliverance. And that is beautifully set forth in verse 8. Dwell on it with me for the rest of the time that we have. Thus saith the Lord. Now God has already said Judgment and destruction is coming. Now God gives opportunity to avoid being a part of that destruction. This is the gospel. This is Christ. Behold, I set before you the way of life 
and the way of death. Here it is. What's it going to be? God has made a way for them to not perish, but to live. Way of life, way of death. Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ goes, sinners are given when it's preached truthfully and faithfully by God's servants, a way of life and a way of death. That's the gospel. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Repent and believe the gospel and be saved. A way of life, a way of death. That's the simplicity of the gospel. How complicated was this message to the people who resided in Jerusalem? Well, let's look at the way of death and then we'll look at the way of life. And it's very simple. It won't take very long. The way of death is this simple. It was that simple here. It's that simple to you today if you are a lost sinner. You don't have to do anything to perish. Not a thing. Not a thing. Just do nothing and you'll perish. The word here is in the way of death, verse 9, He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. That's it. The way of death is just abiding as you are. All you had to do to die here in this situation was just stay inside the walls of the city. And you're surely going to die either by famine, a pestilence, or by a Babylonian sword. One way or the other, you're going to get it. You're going to die. And people starved to death. They ate their own children. They ate animals. They ate dung. We, we have no idea what a siege is like. No idea. But this is the way arm, uh, battles were fought. People took refuge in a city and the ones outside shut them out, shut them down, and starved them out. That's what happened. I mean, we can't imagine. We've read about it, but who could imagine the extent that you would eat your own children or eat your friends or dung or whatever was available. Anything. That's the way of death. Just stay as you are. Don't do anything different. And guess what will happen? You'll die in your sins. Those who continue in sin, who abide in sin, will die in their sin and one day be judged for their sins and cast into a lake of fire. That's the way of death. That's it. It's simple. It's not complicated. Just don't do anything. Don't listen to what God has said. Don't believe in God. Don't believe that it'll come true. Trust in yourself. Think some way you'll escape. Live like you're not going to die. And guess what? You'll die and go to hell. It's that simple. So no sinner has to do anything to go to hell or to be judged, or to perish, that's an automatic. That's a default with all of us because of the sin and transgression of our first parents. The goodness of God is that it provides a way of life. And this is the good news of the gospel. Notice it carefully. It's not complicated, and again, it doesn't take long either. What is the way of life? Middle part of verse 9. He that goeth out. Now here you've got to do something. 
The way of life and life everlasting is not sitting idly, remaining or abiding. It's doing something. It's exactly like Bunyan portrayed it in Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan, in, in that portrayed Christian, living in a city called the City of Destruction, that he believed the warning God gave that one day it would be destroyed and the only way to live was to get out of there. Because if you stayed there, you'd be destroyed with it. And that's what he did, didn't he? He left. He got out of the city of destruction. That's what sinners are commanded to do. Get out. Go out. Don't sit still and perish. Go out. Go out and what does it say? Fall to the king of Babylon. He that goeth forth and falleth to the Chaldeans. That's a very important word. And the whole idea here is our subject of this message. Going out of the city, outside of the walls, and falleth unto that force, to that king that is out there. And falleth here gives the idea of literally falling down, more so casting yourself down, or prostrating yourself before. Now, this is not hard to comprehend. Think about it. If you've seen it in a movie, you've read it in a book. You may have read it in the Bible. When one person submits to a superior power or force and surrenders unto them, what do they do? Usually go unto that individual or that army, and what do they do? bow down before. Many times surrender involves an individual who's a commander-in-chief taking his sword or whatever, presenting it to the other person and laying it down. Meaning I surrender. I'm no longer going to resist. I'm no longer going to fight. Many times then even bowing a knee or bowing the head to that individual. Acknowledging the superior force and confessing your own weakness. I surrender. That's literally what it means. Go out from where you are. Take action. Fall or bow down before that king out there. And guess what? You can live. You can live. It's that simple. This was the message. Read it with me again. He that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live. The sinner that is besieged with sin, leave it. Go out, come out, and bow before that king. And of course, the king we're talking about is King Jesus. Let me put this in a context for you. In fact, turn and read it with me, will you? I'll take the time to read it. Psalms chapter 2 makes this as plain as the noonday sun. Psalms chapter 2. And the last verse, verse 12. Kiss the Son who is the King of kings and Lord of lords who, to whom all judgment has been given into His hand and one day will judge. What is the message now to sinners? Kiss the Son. Bow before Him in reverence. Submit to Him. Confess your sins lest He be angry and you perish from the way. When His wrath is but kindled a little, deny your sins, His wrath will be kindled against you. Confess your sins, He's faithful and just 
to forgive you of your sins. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. The people are told, surrender with a complete and total submission. What are you saying, preacher? Very simply, hear me and I'm done. It's just like the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son in Luke 15, the hog pen and all that? And he said, I'll go back to my father and I'd rather be a servant in his house. He came back willing to be a servant. To submit here in our text, Zedekiah and the people, if they had done it, it would have been to surrender to King Nebuchadnezzar saying, I'd rather be a servant and live than be proud and die in there. You have to swallow your pride, don't you? They didn't do it. They perished. But the, the think of the prodigal. What did he do? He was totally surrendered to the will of the Father, willing to be what? The least slave or servant in his father's house. And when he went to his father with that type of humble submission, what happened? He was recognized as the son that he was and rewarded greatly. Was he not? What about the old publican in Luke 18, 13 who would not so much as lift his head to heaven but smote upon his breast and God said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Final thing I have to say here his life shall be unto him for a prey. A prey there carries with it the idea of a spoil of war, the plunder of war, or the booty of war. You know, when you conquer somebody, then you get to take all their good things. Remember, that's, that's one of the great things, uh, you know, of, of wars that you read about here, is that the victor, what is the saying? To the victor belong the spoils. Well, that is saying there, your very life preserved will be your joy and your reward of a victorious deliverance. And to every sinner who obeys the gospel, that's it. It's not about getting a bunch of stuff. We, don't, we aren't seeking to be saved in order to get rewards or a bunch of stuff. It's simply the gift of what? eternal life the joy and peace of the victory we have and that Christ has accomplished in redeeming our souls and giving us eternal life the Bible the gospel simply says sinner don't stay where you are you'll perish come out in fact, Christ said it this way. I'll quote it and quit. Matthew 11, 28, 29, 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is almost exactly the message Jeremiah has for the people. Go out and surrender to the king of Babylon. And it's not going to be as bad out there as you think it is going to be in here. Surrender. 
That's the message of the gospel, and we who have done that have this testimony, that it is exactly as he said it would be. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, and oh, the prey and joy of knowing you have life eternal and have been delivered from the wrath to come. May God give you the grace to do that today if you're lost.